You know, as we uh, approach the Bible, there are a variety of ways in which people do that. There are some that look at it strictly through, let's say, a scientific lens. Uh, There are those that see it through just a spiritual lens, kind of allegorical lens. There's some that look at it through kind of a progressive lens that have difficult times with some themes and just kind of ignore them or, or cast them aside. Here at Christ Community Church, we go through the Bible verse by verse through different books. And so we're trying to let the Bible speak for itself. I try to let the book, to make it simple, judge me and not me judge the book, although I still want to ask difficult questions and not just You know, if there are things that I struggle with, I want to investigate that. And I suppose for all of us, there comes a time in which, in our spiritual walk with God, we say, well, you know, if this really is inspired by God, then I got to take it seriously, or we dismiss it. So we unapologetically take it seriously, and there are, I think, good reasons, you know, why we do that. And by the way, historical, archaeological, even scientific reasons you look at the um, look at the bibliographical evidence, and uh, you know there's just a lot that uh, gives the Bible uh, some heft in terms of its authority. So we take it seriously, and I try to let it speak for itself. I say all that because what we're going to talk about today is a is a difficult passage in terms of its implications, God's judgment. Now, there's a topic that you do not want to talk about today, all right, when you're talking about the judgment of God, okay? And that's why, frankly, a lot of people just eliminate the Old Testament. Don't want to talk about the Old Testament, you know? That was for, you know, some people that just obviously aren't smart enough to realize that stuff just doesn't go on today, and, you know, it's all about judgment, and so, you know, just get rid of it. So we don't exactly take that approach. <laughs> we feel like it's there for a reason, but and that, and that God hasn't had some you know great personality change, that he's probably the same God then and now, but he can choose to operate differently, certainly. I say all that to say that we're gonna take this passage and let it speak for itself. And there are themes that it runs into that I think you might, some might find uncomfortable. So I'm gonna ask us to do this. I'm gonna ask you to stay. <laughs> And just listen to the end, let it work in your heart, and your head. And know this, know that we have all kinds of ways to try to engage the Bible. We have, a, we have a text line, you can ask questions. Sometimes after the sermon, we'll have Q&A if we have time for that. So this is not just me coming up here telling you how you ought to think, all right? This is us reading a passage together, trying to learn and trying to engage our hearts and minds with that. And uh, so that, that's the way we enter into this. So hold on to the end. Just give the Holy Spirit at least a chance to speak to your heart about the things that we're going to talk about today, okay? Deal? Well, we have uh, come to relate the terms ground zero uh, to Twin Towers and what happened on 9-11. But the official definition according to the dictionary, is a point directly above or below an exploding nuclear bomb or a starting point or base for some activity. Ground zero. 
I think both of those descriptions aptly portray the temple of the Jews in the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now, not the nuclear bomb, but certainly great violence. That would equal the violence done by the nuclear bomb. It was out of Judaism that Christianity arose, right? We know that from reading the Bible. And the Jewish temple would indeed be an epicenter for violence similar to a bomb exploding. So Acts 21, where we're at in our, uh, in our study through this book, journals, I think, an important episode of ground zero at the temple. Now, to understand why things were so raucous in Acts 21, we have to look at the contributing factors that caused this division between Jew and Gentile. So it's really important for us to understand, or else it doesn't make sense. It's like, why are people getting so wigged out here? You know, so they disagreed with Paul. But it, once we understand where the Jew was coming from, then it, it, it makes a lot more sense. So three things. First was this idea of religious purity, all right? The Jews desired great religious purity as their identity was inextricably linked to keeping the law. Now, generally, Gentiles had no regard for the law, right? They didn't much care. And the Jewish mindset was that you had to follow the law in order to have a relationship with God. One was obliged, for instance, to do all the ceremonial washings. Uh, one had to follow the sacrificial system. One had to keep all the ordinances and the feasts. And the Jews believed that by following the law in these ways, a man would be good, a man would be accepted by God, and you know, he'd be recognized as a Jew and enjoy this fellowship with God. Now, the law had been worked out with hundreds and hundreds of commandments and decrees. Uh, you know, your hands had to be washed a certain way. Dishes had to be washed a certain way in some of these ceremonies. Uh, so there was page after page of what could and could not be done for the Jew, particularly like on a, on a Sabbath day, all right? All kinds of rules. These were all necessary ingredients to be accepted by the Jews, to be counted as a Jew. Since the Gentile did not do these things, they were viewed as impure, dirty, and not a part of God's chosen people. Religious purity, one. Secondly, it was racial. There was a racial animus between the Jews and the Gentiles. Racial tension is well documented in the book of Acts. Now, when Peter, remember when Peter had this vision in, earlier in the book of Acts, and there was this sheet and these, what was called unclean animals that were in the sheet in this vision, and God said, hey, it's okay to eat those animals. Peter's like, what? You know, as a Jew, I can't do that. So initially, he's like, you know, rebelling against that idea. But later, he's in Caesarea relating kind of his interpretation that God had given him for the vision, and listen to this. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I shall not call any person common or unclean. So 
kind of a, a primary piece of revelation of God's word regarding the impact of the gospel. Okay, and it's not talking about a religious effect, he's talking about a racial one. That people who before were kind of hostile toward one another would now be unified, Jew and Gentile. See, the gospel is much more than reconciliation with God, it's also reconciliation with others. You have that horizontal and vertical thing going on with reconciliation, and that is what the gospel does. So you had religious, you had racial. Next was kind of a patriotic or national feeling for the Jews. The Jews saw Rome as a barrier uh, between them realizing their nationalistic dreams of, of freedom, and you know they constantly were rebelling against that, riots, insurrections going on, and Rome would come with their boot upon the Jewish neck, keeping them in submission. All right, there was no love loss between the two. One Roman soldier lewdly exposed himself in the temple area, and thousands were trampled to death in the ensuing riot. So there was hostility against Gentiles, and this had been, been increasing. And in less than a decade from what we're reading here in Acts 21, uh, there's a war that would produce multiple massacres, including over 20,000 Jews slaughtered in Caesarea in one hour. And then just a couple years later, you had the culmination of the temple's destruction. So knowing this nationalistic pride of being a, a nation that, you know, that God wanted as, as, as his people, and, and the Gentiles being on the outside, knowing the religious purity, knowing the racial animus. It kind of makes sense where you see the Jews are ripe for this fever pitch attitude with Paul when he apparently in their eyes had desecrated the temple. Now he didn't, but that's what they were thinking, all right? So let's take a look at our passage. We're gonna read it in context. We're only gonna bite off a, a little bit there in the front and chew on that today, but let's stand as we take a look at our passage. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learned the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, trying to rally them. This is the man who's teaching everyone, Paul, everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Now, he wasn't, but that's what they were saying. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Well, not Greeks, we're talking about one guy, and even at that, he didn't actually bring them into the part that he wasn't supposed to be. But, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that uh, Paul had brought him into the temple. Let's just right off the bat, I mean, it's pretty plain, that normally when you have an enemy, they're going to generalize and exaggerate. <laughs> All right, your, your actions and your words. And certainly that is what was taking place here. Earlier in chapter 21, Paul was trying to prove his respect and devotion to the law by entering into a ritual with four other guys. This, this whole action was recommended by the early church leaders who knew that Paul would have a problem with the Jews in Jerusalem. So they thought, hey, if you'll go and pay for these sacrifices that these guys are making with this Nazarite vow, then people will really see your true heart that you're, you're respecting the law. You're not trying to desecrate the temple or, or anything like that. So Paul agreed to do that. Well, did it work? No, quite the opposite. I mean, how ironic that when he was trying to show that he respected the law, he's being accused of desecrating uh, the temple. Notice it was Jews from Asia who were responsible for igniting the commotion. Most think probably from Ephesus. Uh, so these were not Jews who had converted to Christ. And by the way, when I say the Jews, henceforth in the message, I'm not saying every single Jew who existed even at that time, okay? Because obviously there were a number of Jews who believed Christ, who uh, believed the gospel. We're talking about the majority of the religious leaders. So when, when that term is used, Jews, that's pretty much who I am referring to. So let's... Let's keep that in mind. So it was Jews from Asia who were responsible for igniting this commotion. It says they were stirring up the crowd. It means they caused the crowd to be very angry and actually moved them to violence or even a, a riotous scene. Uh, so when it says stirring up the whole crowd, we get a sense there's a lot of people involved in this, right? A great number. And they're putting their hands on Paul meaning that they meant to do him harm. Now in verse 28, they are calling for all of those who were present to join in. And then they appeal to their passions with these trumped up charges that Paul defiled the temple. The facts are that Trophimus had been seen with Paul. He was with Paul in Jerusalem. But Paul, there was no way that he was going to bring him into the inner court of the temple, Trophimus being a Gentile. And this was disallowed 
by Jewish law. But the Asian Jews assumed that Trophimus entered that inner court either without knowing the facts or they were deliberately lying about it. Now, the Romans actually gave the Jews the right to kill someone on the spot if a Gentile were to go into the inner court of the temple. In fact, if you look at our picture here, uh, you can see 14 there in the, in the center of the temple. That was called the court of the women. Now, outside of the main building here in this area that you look at right in here, thank you, appreciate that. That was called the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles could not cross over. You see four, the, this area right there where it's got the number four? That had a little wall, like a four-foot wall that the Gentiles were not to cross. And attached to the wall was an inscription that was actually etched in stone. Um, this was called the Sorig. And this is what it said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So they have, they have found in archeological digs this Sorig. So if you are not in the right ethnic group, if you are not in the right religion, you could not enter. Stay out, you Gentiles. Stay out, those of you who are not like us. You cannot know God like we can. Know anybody like that? Could it be that wall, that barricade, that sign is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 2, 13 through 19? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. Notice a dividing wall of hostility. Mm. This was not some, you know, benign speed bump. Hatred and contempt toward people for whom Christ died. Oh, Christian, never forget that, okay? In our society, that is becoming more increasingly uncivil and split politically. We have no enemies in this sense because every person is created in the image of God and is deserving of respect and is deserving to be treated as a human being, regardless of their background or their choices. 
a dividing wall of hostility. We are in Christ, and being in Christ is what unites us as believers in his church. This doesn't mean that we deny our race or our culture, but what it means is every other designation is secondary to our being in Christ and being children of God. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All these distinctions take a back seat to being in Christ. There's a true story in World War II in France of some American GIs who lost their buddy in a battle. And so they carried his to a small Catholic cemetery. They found the priest and they asked the priest for permission to bury their buddy. And the priest asked them, you know, was your friend Catholic? And they said, no. He said, I'm really sorry, but he cannot be buried here. So at night, outside the cemetery fence, they buried their buddy. They slept, they came back to say their final words. They looked for his grave and they couldn't find it. They went to the priest and asked him, where's our buddy's grave? And the priest said, you know, for the first half of the night, I thought about the words that I told you. And for the second half of the night, I moved the fence. Jesus Christ has moved the fence when he died on the cross and has included those that we previously thought are left out. And really, don't all of us deserve to be left out? (laughs) It's only by the grace of God that we enjoy having this inclusion of being one in Christ. And that comes through simple faith. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and drag him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. We have witnessed this scene before in the book of Acts of people being at a fever pitch and a riot, and some have lost their life in the midst of that. It's interesting how this lynch mob was particular in the way that they were trying to kill Paul. The people would not kill him within the temple precinct, for this would have defiled the temple, Rather, they dragged him outside, closed the door so he couldn't run back in for refuge. The temple doors were shut. Now, some interpreters see a certain symbolism in the shutting of the gates. This is actually the last major scene we see of the temple in the book of Acts. And the gates were closed. And in those few brief details of the Jerusalem Jews, we see a major spiritual turning point in the book of Acts. And this is a sign of their final rejection of the gospel. Jesus had come and lived 33 years or so on the face of the earth. They rejected him as their Messiah. The apostles came and they expounded on the meaning of Jesus' coming, and they rejected the apostles. And they shut the door. Israel's ethnic pride, which largely fueled their efforts, prevented it from fulfilling their intended divine mission, which was what? To be a light 
to the Gentiles. That's what is said in Isaiah 49.6. And the Jews' rejection of Jesus robbed the temple of the universal glory it was to have to be a place of prayer for all the nations in Isaiah 56.7. Never again was Paul going to return to Jerusalem to witness or worship. And by shutting out the messenger and the message of salvation, basically his opponents sealed their city's doom. And for that, we need to look at the words of Jesus. It cracks me up how people distort who Jesus is. And some will say, you know, Jesus was this loving, just loving person, which he was. And, you know, we're going to use just the New Testament. You have to basically get rid of half of what Jesus said because he quoted from the Old Testament so much. But Jesus also was an instrument of justice and predicted this. Listen to this. This is out of Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem, again, I know I'm being redundant. This is Jesus, all right? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Now, does that sound like mere allegory to you or very specific details that are given? And then in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So 13 years after the Jews close the door on the temple to Paul. When Passover arrived in 70 AD, over one million Jews gathered in Jerusalem for that Passover. And for the next several months, the Jews would experience devastation and hardship and bloodshed under the Roman general Titus as he was responding to Jewish rebellion once again. Now, the Jews had numerous opportunities to surrender or to compromise, and they did not. So Titus built a siege wall around the entire city, and he cut off all supplies, food and water. So with these provisions cut off, there was great famine. They started piling up the corpses within the city and in the streets. Jews caught trying to flee the city, and even those now who were surrendered were crucified. The Jews resorted to cannibalism, eating hay or even human excrement. And after penetrating the walls around the city, the temple was totally burned to the ground. And on August 10th of 70 AD, there was only smoldering rubble that remained along uh, the Western Wall in particular. 
But the temple itself, where it once stood, it was plowed over. Just as Jesus had said, the temple and city was destroyed. And for the temple, not one stone was upon another. Around one million Jews lost their life. And another 100,000 were taken captive. And those captives were spread throughout the Roman Empire. And when the Romans were done with Jerusalem in 70 AD, get this, not a single Jew was left alive in the city. All gone. The Romans renamed the city. And for years, they would not allow a Jew to enter into it. And some 50 years later, the Roman emperor um, Hadrian killed another million Jews. So I read the words of Jesus and I look at history and I have to ask myself, wow, that is either the most unbelievable coincidence or God really doesn't mean what he says. Now, how did the Jews arrive at this point? It was because they hated Christ as the Messiah. I mean, when they read the Old Testament, they read it through a political and national lens. For instance, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they longed for that to come, for a time of righteousness and peace that it would prevail, a time when Jerusalem would enjoy safety and prosperity and not just for a brief time, but forever. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said, they wanted to see this restoration of the kingdom, to see God's promises fulfilled in a political way, in a governmental way. You know, they had had enough of Assyrian oppression. They'd had enough of Babylonian captivity. They'd had enough of Persian rule. They'd had enough of, of Rome stepping on the neck of the Jews. And they knew that the Old Testament talked about a bright future, a hopeful future. They knew that God was wanting to set up a kingdom. And so they anticipated that with the coming Messiah, that he would set this up the only problem is they ignored many of the other scriptures that talked about a suffering servant. They saw it all happening together. They wanted to see it happen now. But instead of a king, they got a lamb who died on a cross. So they saw all these prophecies as coming true in this Messiah. But when Christ started talking about suffering, no thanks. They had him rejected before they put him on the cross. And they rejected his messengers. And they rejected the gospel. So it's almost with this finality, the gates were closed. Good news to the Jew was not accepted because they would have to shift their security in following all these ceremonies as a Jew instead of seeing their security in Christ. Christ. 
They couldn't do that. They were holding on to the past, holding on to all these religious ceremonies. That's where security was found. And now God is asking them to shift their focus. You see, in actuality, every one of the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the Old Testament looked forward to their fulfillment in Christ. And this is completely what they missed. And when Christ died on the cross, this need for keeping all of these laws and washings and ceremonies were done away with. Now, we're not talking about the moral law of God that reflects God's character, but the ordinances and the washings and the commandments for the temple services. And in Christ, the need for these was done away with. And all of our sin, past, present, and future in Christ, were paid for. No longer by a sacrifice that would just postpone judgment for the next year, as in the Old Testament, but now in Christ, he's the perfect eternal lamb of God that pays for our sin, past, present, and future, and satisfies the righteous demands of a holy God. So Christ legally and spiritually made us free. And the sacrificial system was dramatically and practically done away with by the Romans. I mean, it was completely wiped out, never to return to this day. I mean, think of it. All the records were destroyed about, you know, what tribe you're in, you know, who the priests are. The whole system was finished. God wiped it out. In Ephesians 6, it says, the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's not through the law. The law is to no longer hold sway for either the Jew or the Gentile in terms of being reconciled to God. Now, why do we go in to all of this detail and all this history about the temple? Because I think, all right, if, if God was serious in how people approach Jesus and the gospel then, how serious is he today? I'm not talking about denomination, religion. I don't care what label you put on it. I'm talking about Jesus. I have no reason to doubt the historical accuracy of what's being told here. So how serious is God today? So can we trifle with the gospel as if we can sit in judgment of it? I mean, some think they can outwit God. Uh, you know, that, that maybe they'll have a pass on a life that's, you know, dismissing the claim of Jesus upon them. You know, I don't have to live in light of any of the claims of Jesus. So, you know, you approach the Christian life as if, you're the one in charge, right? You're going to operate by your own rules. And then there are some who wait about making a decision about Christ. They're, they think they're in control of their days, their life, even their death, and they're gambling on their own eternal destiny. And many assume that God's judgment will not apply to them. That's the God of the Old Testament. Let me ask you this. Does it sound like to you when you read this, you know, New Testament passage 
and understand the history, that this Jehovah God is somebody we can trifle with? Does it sound like to you that he will not care if we don't take our Christian life, you know, seriously? He doesn't care if we take it for granted? Does it sound like to you that we can just shut the door to Christ's invitation and have zero repercussions? If anything, I think I'm soft-pedaling it. I'm just trying to ask very honest questions in relationship to the passage. And if all of that be true in terms of what the passage is, I think, implying, then we've got some serious thinking to do about where our lives are headed. And I think it's a legitimate question when people have the trajectory of their life going in a, in a direction that's completely opposite of the scripture to ask, ask people who claim to be Christians, you know, how serious are you really taking this thing that you call yourself a Christian? Isn't that a fair question to ask? And I don't stand and judge, you know, whether people generally know Christ or not. I, I can't know that for sure. That's, that's between them and God. I like what Solomon wrote in the last verses of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray.